Leslie Silco said, I will tell you something about stories. They aren't just entertainment. Don't be fooled. They are all we have. We all have stories. We all tell stories. If I told you how I fell 100 feet off a rock climb, you'd start thinking of your own stories, one you'd like to tell in response. Maybe a bigger better, or somebody you know did something similar. It's part of our conversation, how we relate to each other. But stories are so much more. Tune in today for an unexpected discovery I made while studying the stories of hikers, bikers, skiers, and rock climbers. An insight into how we all manage risk. And this comes from their stories. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over those stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Power serves us best when we know how to use it. From the first recorded adventure tales of Marco Polo, stories of adventure, challenge, and discovery have been used to entertain, to define people, to relive events and share experiences. For adventurers today, it is no different. And sometimes, what the story tells us about ourselves is even more interesting than the stories themselves. Follow me on this adventure today as we start with the stories of adventurers to unmask risk and what lies behind it. This was one of the most interesting research projects that I did because the results were so unexpected and yet so fascinating. So I wanted to share them with you today because it applies to so many other parts of our lives. This doesn't apply to you just if you're an outdoor recreationalist. This applies to our lives in all areas. Everything that we risk in, we use this same process that I discovered. So I conducted 16 interviews of people who participate regularly in outdoor recreation. So human-powered sports in wild places such as mountains, rivers, and deserts. And the interviewees consisted of eight men and eight women between the ages of 22 and 75 years old. Their sports of choice included mountaineering, road biking, mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding, stand-up paddleboarding, whitewater kayaking, desert backpacking, and river rafting. So each shared personal stories of exploits that I then structurally analyzed for risk using Labov and Wolowski's structural analysis model. Now that sounds really official, but I'm going to break it down for you so you understand. What that means, in a nutshell, is that these cool guys, Labov and Wolowski, broke down the personal narrative and found a pattern in the way stories were told. By breaking the stories into the parts, L and W, I'm going to call them that, into the parts that they defined, right? You could evaluate different structural aspects of a story. So let me share an example so it will make sense, okay? One of the guys that I interviewed was named Alex. And he said in his story, and this is going to be an exact quote, and then I'm going to break it down and show you what these structural sections are, okay? I was on a climb for charity, a mountain climb. I'm not a mountain climber, but we were climbing a mountain in Chile called Aconcagua. And uh, 
It was really, 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 really cold, like 40 below. Now, this is the opening section of the story that Labob and Molaski call the orientation. Okay? The story goes on. And on the day before the summit day, I was feeling extraordinarily strong. And then all of a sudden, lost feeling in my feet, and literally, I couldn't walk. I mean, I absolutely couldn't do it. This is the second section of the story that Ellen W. call complicating action. Okay, the story goes on. It was a small group, and so it was a choice. Let's leave Alex, and we're going to push for the summit. And they got me all set up, and my friend Eric decided he was going to stay with me. Long-time friend. And the short part of the story is that in 40 Below Temps, he, we said, let's give it a shot and see if I can warm up your feet. We didn't think there was necessarily something wrong. They'd just gotten so frozen that they'd lost circulation. Okay, so this section is the section L and W called the evaluation. You can see they're evaluating how to deal with the situation. The story goes on. And so he put my feet under his jacket and into his armpits. And ten minutes later, after him screaming in pain about how cold it was, I got feeling back and we went for the summit. This is what L and W call the resolution, this last section where the story kind of winds up. So I'm interviewing him and I said, well, gosh, not only did you summit, but you saved your feet. And Alex says, I'm not sure. I think it would have, like circulation would have. Yeah, he did a lot of wonderful things for me with that armpit moment. Okay, that last and final statement is what L and W call a coda. So, why does this breakdown matter? The reason it matters in this case was that after I had collected all these stories, I broke them down into these L and W structural parts, right? The results of my analysis brought two things to the forefront. First of all, was that risk was the roving master and was involved in any and all parts of the story. So it could have been in the orientation, it could have been in complicating action, sometimes it was in the evaluation, sometimes in the resolution. Basically, risk could be anywhere in these stories, okay? And the second was that it received very little fanfare. So here's risk, which you would think would be the great big brouhaha of the story. But instead, very little fanfare. It was just sort of passed over, even in that story, right? The risk wasn't the focus. It was hey, my, my feet got cold and I needed to get them back together, but we didn't really even hear anything about the, the summit or the difficulty of that happening. So I found that to be something consistent with all of the stories, that the risk was just sort of glossed over. It was there, it was a part of it, and it could show up in any part of the story, any section of the structure of it. So it was, it was key, but it wasn't the glaring, screaming item. It was just passed over. Now the scattered but certain nature of risk within the narratives shows that risk plays an integral role within these stories of the outdoor recreation folk group. And we can clearly identify that the activities these recreationalists participate in involve danger and potential injury or death. And yet these participants all claimed they were not risk takers. Despite the fact that they climbed mountains over 22,000 feet in elevation, backpacked multi-day trips across arid deserts relying only on water within the landscape, skied backcountry icy mountaintops on skis without edges, 
whitewater kayaked, and rock climbed 1,200-foot pinnacles to stand on a pizza box-sized rock in utter darkness to see the night sky. Despite these things that are clearly dangerous, they didn't hear one another's interviews, so this wasn't any kind of a competition. They were all interviewed separately. They all told their story separately, but they all made claims such as, I'm not a huge risk taker, or I'm a snowboarder and a mountain biker, but I'm very careful about what I do out on those things. Or, it didn't feel risky, it felt really safe. Or, I don't think I would do things that are risky or dangerous, I'm pretty reserved. Or, I don't think climbing is any more risky than walking to the grocery store. And the last one was, I'm not a real physical risk taker. Isn't this fascinating? You look at what they're doing, you look at there's possible death in every single one of them, and yet none of them think they're risk takers. The question then begs, what defines risk for these individuals? And what steps are taken to alleviate risk to the point that these clearly dangerous undertakings are no longer considered dangerous by those who choose to participate in them? Now this insight isn't about stories, it's about how humans deal with risk. But the wonderful, powerful thing is that this information was derived from a starting point of stories. Another situation where we can come to understand the human condition in direct and indirect ways, all through story. So let's talk about the results, because these are fascinating. As I talked with them and interviewed them further, I found that the process they go through The first process when they decide if they're going to undertake some event or activity was one of risk identification. Though these types of sports often seem extremely risky to the uninvolved onlooker, the participants engage in two steps that essentially manage the risk. The first is quick and often instinctual calculation and regards a number of criteria in order to determine the potential risk and each person chooses their own variety of issues to analyze. But let me tell you about the six that I identified with this study. So when someone asked one of the skiers, hikers, mountain climbers, if they want to do a certain climb, kayak a certain river, the first thing they do is quickly go through a mental process of checking off the following items. Playthrough scenario, How far removed is the danger? Scout the conditions. Incremental. I'll go into more detail on these. How much control do they have? And what is the experience of others? So as they're analyzing the risk, these are the six things that they mentally calculate. So in more detail, the playthrough scenario is one of the tools for risk assessment. And it's to play through a mental movie of possible scenarios and outcomes to determine whether the reward was worth the potential harm. They also gauged in the scenarios how the event had to play out for safety, which brings me to the next one, which was how far removed is the risk. For example, if a number of mistakes can be made on a given move and the participant still has a chance for success without harm or death, then the risk is more likely to be considered acceptable. If harm is only one move away, Most who use the evaluation tool indicated they would not engage. For example, if you're riding a narrow section of trail on a mountain bike and you're next to a 100-foot drop-off, one mistake can mean death because you can go over the edge of it. 
If, on the other hand, the trail is wide enough that if a mistake is made, you hit a rock or your tire comes out from under you, falling off is not certain, then the risk is more than one move away, and it therefore may be acceptable. Right? So the third item was the experience of others. Risk is gauged by the experiences and success or failure of others. For example, when Alex was discussing how he made his decision to move ahead with the climb of Aconcagua, one of the tallest mountains in the world, part of his process of evaluation was to see how many deaths had occurred on the mountain in the past year. Allie said, she was another gal, she said, it's like you can break your hand or your clavicle, but you don't really hear about people dying on a mountain bike. That was how she analyzed the experience of others, of how safe this sport was for her. Talking with other people was often mentioned as a way to gauge risk as well. So what experience had others had doing this offered route? Okay, the third one is scouting conditions and assessing technicality. Scouting conditions is an attempt to evaluate risk potential established by the terrain and whether or not they have the skill required for success in that terrain. For a river rafter or kayaker, it's walking the river and assessing the flow and pull of the water, the location of rocks, length of drop-off, and speed of the water. For a climber, it may be looking for anchors, ledges, handholds, loose rock. For a backcountry skier, it may include checking avalanche conditions, looking for terrain traps, and checking snow conditions. So... Checking the conditions and assessing what kind of technical ability is involved in being able to do this successfully. The next one was incremental progress. How far is this beyond my skill level? Multiple interviewees discussed the idea of incremental learning. In order to progress in this sport, one must gain skills they don't currently have. But making big jumps from one skill level to the next possesses too much risk. For example, one interviewee said, How I approach that is taking on class two rapids and then class three rapids and then class four and then class five. So in other words, if she's only skilled at class three rapids, she's not going to jump to a class five rapid automatically. She's going to incrementally increase the risk that she takes, but not make big jumps. So the last one was control. For those to whom control is an issue, they judged risk according to how much control they would retain in the situation and how much was left to some other entity, even if that entity was gravity? Are they in control or is something else? After they had gauged their situation in regard to these six items, they then naturally went through a process called risk alleviation. This is the second big one that they turned to to figure all this out, whether they would engage in the sport. So basically, after risk has been identified and assessed, the interviewees each had certain steps they plugged in, to further reduce risk. This final step determines whether or not the participants will engage in the sport or the route. This cognitive equation takes place sometimes in a matter of minutes, but sometimes much longer if the danger or risk is higher. And there were eight of these. The first one is experience. Had they attempted this activity at this level before? Did they have the experience to feel confident that they could succeed without injury? The second one was confidence. One interviewee put it this way, I think risk is a very personal thing. And I think a lot of risk comes from the mental state that you're in, 
So being confident and comfortable in what you're doing eliminates a huge amount of risk. In other words, is your head in the game? The third one was skill. Skill is defined as competent excellence and performance. Each of the sports mentioned require a specific set of skills to navigate the sport successfully. Possessing those skills lowers the risk of injury or death. Beth said, I ski things that maybe someone else would never ski because that would be scary and you could break a leg. But I feel I'm not going to break a leg because I know what I'm doing. The fourth risk alleviation indicator is preparation. Limiting risk can be done by prior preparation. Tim explains, Part of the draw of the desert is that it can be very unforgiving, where if you don't have your T's crossed and your I's dotted in terms of preparation, you can find yourself in real big trouble, real quick. In other words, in the world of outdoor recreation, preparation can mean the difference between life and death. And is there a way that this athlete can prepare to alleviate risk? The fifth is going with others. In other words, safety in numbers, if someone gets hurt, is there somebody there to call 911 or carry them out? And the next one is gear and safety equipment. So in the words of Kara, if something can save your life, why wouldn't you wear it? Specifically items like harnesses, avalanche beacons, avalanche backpacks, safety ropes, etc. These things were mentioned by those that I interviewed. The need to double-check safety gear for tight knots and correct usage was also noted. So can they alleviate some of their risk by using safety equipment? The next one was knowledge. Two of the most experienced of those interviewed, one male and one female, both mentioned knowledge as a key to risk reduction. Roland explained it like this. Another piece of eliminating risk is making sure that you're doing everything correctly, that all your knots are done correctly. If you're going to be trad climbing, you know how to place gear correctly. You know how to build anchors. And the last one was ego. Roland also noted the importance of not letting ego push you to make unwise choices that increase the risk. He said, There have been a lot of climbs and pitches that I haven't felt good about, or you know, a storm is coming in, or the sun is setting and you're not prepared for it. And we've said, Okay, we're backing off. We've put our ego aside and said, We're not going on top today, but we'll be alive to do it tomorrow. So, for each recreationalist, the rewards they received from participating in their chosen activities varied. The recreationalist I interviewed unequivocally assured me that their purpose in pursuing these activities did not center around the risk. Rather, risk was a necessary part of the process to be navigated but not the attraction. The things they sought were the challenge of the sport, the opportunity to connect with the landscape, the release from urban life, healing and rejuvenation, fun, the social connection it gave them. They had a lot of other things they got from it, but it wasn't about the risk. There were other researchers done, um, for example, a study of 22 New Zealand mountaineers, and they found the same thing there. While they may have to deal with danger and stress in pursuing their passions, the researcher said they are not reckless, foolhardy, or adrenaline junkies. Rather, they describe themselves as typically calm, sensible, and analytical in their approach to the potential dangers of climbing. Unquote. So, these sports were life-affirming to the participants. They were not death-defying. When you see a skateboarder try to grind the rail, 
he's probably instinctively considered his skill set, put on safety gear, evaluated others' experiences with the attempt, taken stock of his own experience, and considered the likelihood of his injury or death. And if he feels like he can manage the risk involved, he then proceeds to give it a try. This doesn't always work out well, as the doctors and nurses in the ER room know, but it's a process that we use to manage our risky and dangerous choices. Are you fascinated with this? I am. I think also that the older we get, the more proficient we get at this. The younger people, maybe this applies more to the skateboarders, but feeling like they're indestructible. Their ideas of evaluating risk may not be the same as an older person's ideas of evaluating risk. In fact, each of these things are different for every single person. So how can you use this in your life? Well, the next time you think about whether you should ask out the great looking girl in the coffee line at Starbucks, watch your mind go through the risk identification and alleviation processes. See where you get stuck and decide if the story you're telling yourself is fact or fiction, and if you should push past it. Can you alleviate one more game stopper so you can move forward? This is just a symbolic example, but there's going to be a lot of these places in your life. Have fun out there telling your stories this week, and I'll see you next week on Love Your Story Podcast. Podcast.